Antediluvian Revelations, a poetic retelling of the Book of Enoch, the Prophet. Summary Discussion of Part 1, Initial Conflicts and Actions. The title of Canto 1 is The Blessed and the Accursed, because the content identifies the two forces within the epic tale that are the antagonists and protagonists. The premise for the story overall is that there are two types of extraterrestrial beings, good and evil, capable of intergalactic travel. While all of these advanced species of beings or angels have the capability for eternal life in order to travel from one place to another in the expanse of the universe, there is only one supreme being who is the creator for all of it. Eloi, the shiny one, created all creatures throughout the universe and he created these eternal beings, sons of God, to watch over the creatures who had not evolved to be eternal and capable of intergalactic travel. Eloi's primary regulation for an advanced eternal species has always been that these sons of heaven were not allowed to interfere with the natural development of lesser creatures living and evolving on planets like Earth throughout the universe. The conflict in this epic begins with one group of these eternal beings becoming rebellious and deciding to defy God's commandments that prohibited contact and evolutionary interference with lesser evolved creatures. God created, tasked, and limited these eternal beings to have the purpose of watching, recording, and reporting the evolutionary development of ephemeral beings on habitable planets. A modern-day document providing an alternate description of this event is the Urantia Book. According to this New Age religion histoire, Earth is known to these transgressing aliens as Urantia. While the author's claim about this quasi-science fiction text is that its content are the rambling and incoherent contributions of demonically possessed morons, the extraterrestrial sources for the information revealed in the Urantia book are the same accursed spirits described in this epic tale. Followers of the Urantia book, a polytheistic theology, claim it is the prophetic relation of God, but it is actually the output of a satanic cult whose high priest is Melchizedek. The Urantia book becomes very bad science fiction with Melchizedek as its key prophetic persona. Who is Melchizedek? One example of ancient editorialization. In the Urantia book, Melchizedek is a fictional high priest and the main source of the book's theological argument. The unknown author of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews claimed that Jesus Christ was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. See Hebrews 7, 17. Moses wrote that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is now known as Jerusalem. See Genesis 14, 18. Moses also wrote that Melchizedek was the high priest of the Most High God. The only other reference in the Old Testament to this truly insignificant and fictionalized persona appearing in the Torah is in Psalm 110. And it is the only psalm attributed to David that mentions Melchizedek. According to Blekensop, the meeting between Abraham and the king of Sodom that introduces Melchizedek was an editorial insertion to support Second Temple theology. Blekensop's claim is that the information about Melchizedek was not in the original Mosaic text. The author agrees with Blekensop and also claims that Melchizedek is a fabrication in the Old Testament, New Testament, and even the Book of Mormon because of this character's modern-day appearance in the Urantia book which is a compilation of cult writings based on post-transcendental meditation connections with an extraterrestrial spiritual entity that is not Eloi. 
Curiously, Melchizedek does not appear in the Quran. However, Islamic scholars have identified the character as a priest who blessed Abraham because Islam also has components of its theology that originated in the same ancient text that became the Old Testament. The matter of Melchizedek blessing Abraham appears in the editorialized biblical text. However, Abraham was the originator of all the tribes of Judea as a descendant of Noah. Abraham would not have needed to be ordained by a priest to be a prophet of Israel because he was its progenitor. There would not have been any priest of the theology associated with Abraham to do such a thing because Abraham was the father of Judaism, a faith in the singular entity, the everlasting Almighty God. There are no other biblical texts that clearly explain the origin of Melchizedek because the appearance of this character is a poorly concealed attempt to curse the Holy Bible with a falsehood. It may also be the case that the mentioning of Melchizedek in the Book of Mormon is an additional falsehood injected by heretical sources during that book's creation. As explained previously, the editorialization of an original religious text had the effect of causing that text to become cursed. There are many other examples in the canonized Holy Bible which prove curses have been placed upon this book by pagan editorialization. Such curses of paganism may have also been put into the Book of Mormon, although it has a more recent origination than other Judeo-Christian texts. The worst example of curse in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. The pagan edition of the New Testament included this completely scurrilous lie in the testimony of Matthew, which used Roman mythology as the basis for deification of Jesus Christ by immaculate conception. While the beginning of the Gospel, according to Matthew, clearly delineates the genealogy of Jesus to state that he was the son of Joseph who descended from David. What follows that truth is a complete lie of how Mary was a virgin impregnated by God who would do no such thing. This is one of many examples within the present-day version of the New Testament that validates the claims presented here that the Holy Bible has been cursed with lies of impropriety about Almighty God. It is an insult to God to insinuate that he would, for any reason, impregnate a virgin human female because that concept originated in pagan mythology. The mythology and paganization of Jesus Christ's birthright as an immaculate conception persisted in history, and these myths also involved Melchizedek. The Slavonic translation of the Book of Enoch the Prophet tells that Melchizedek was born fully grown from the dead body of a pregnant woman. None of the details of this occurrence appear in the Ethiopic text as translated by Lawrence because Melchizedek was not in the original Ethiopic manuscript of the Book of Enoch the Prophet. A lack of intellectual development caused the unknown Slavic language translator to succumb to the curse of confusion hidden within the original text. The Slavonic version of the Enoch story is heretical trash because the man who translated the Ethiopic text to Slavonic was a pagan heretic. A human being cannot be born fully grown from the body of a dead woman who had become inexplicably pregnant during menopause, which is what appears in that blasphemous version of the ancient text attributed to Enoch. Metaphorically speaking, the origin of Melchizedek, as it appears in the blasphemous Slavonic translation of Enoch's prophecies, is the diametrical representation of Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, which is also a blasphemy. Neither of these two completely unnatural birth events was realistically, sensibly, or reasonably necessary to have appeared in the text associated with the origins of Judaism, a monotheistic religion. 
The alternative explanation is that Melchizedek was not human because this character may actually represent Satan's extraterrestrial species as his high priest. Melchizedek is not the high priest of God Almighty, Eloi, the Shining One. The editorialized inject of this character in the Holy Bible and possibly even in the Book of Mormon has the intent to trick unsuspecting readers into believing a lie. Jesus Christ was God's chosen Messiah and he was not a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Additionally, there is also no clear relevant relationship between Melchizedek and the truth of Eloi, the Shining One, because there is nothing substantive within the Holy Bible to support this character's spiritual connection with the one true God. There is no book of Melchizedek in the ancient biblical texts because he did not exist in the history of Judaism as a prophet, priest, or leader. However, identifying this character supports the author's claim that the Holy Bible has been editorialized to mislead people into believing a falsehood about the innocence of the fallen angels, the species of errant extraterrestrials who interfered in the evolution of mankind. Whenever the character of Melchizedek appears in a religious text, the purpose for it has been to curse the text with a falsehood. For this reason, there will not be any mention of Melchizedek in the poetic retelling of Enoch's story, but the discussion of how the use of this persona in religious texts curses those texts has been the only purpose for including it in this book. Melchizedek was not a priest of the Most High God because this character is a complete and blasphemous lie perpetuated by heretics with the intent to curse the text wherein it appears. This demonstration of how the Holy Bible has been edited for centuries also validates the claim that it is a cursed book. This ancient form of cursing a text may have also been applied to the Book of Mormon without any of the Latter-day Saints church followers ever knowing that they had been tricked the same as Catholics have been tricked by Satan himself. It seems that the inclusion of a reference to Melchizedek is the key element to the curse that conceals the truth about Jesus Christ in several biblical texts. Jesus Christ was not the Son of God, but it has been Satan who has wanted mankind to believe a lie about the Messiah in order to insult Almighty God. As the reader will discover by continuing to read this book, claiming that God impregnated a human female to produce a son would become God is actually a blasphemy of God. And this pagan ideology has been the scurrilous lie pagan heretics have written into both the Holy Bible and the Book of Mormon. The Orantia book is a very lengthy text that even includes its own version of the New Testament Gospels with additional falsified details. Finally, the exclusion of Melchizedek from the Quran indicates that there has been no need to curse a text that it is a curse itself in its entirety. Muslims know that Jesus Christ was not the Son of God, but they do not regard him as the Messiah because they revere Muhammad as their messianic prophet. Islam is a monotheistic religion that involves rituals of sacrifice, supernatural entities known as jinns, and only five core beliefs that do not include repentance and acceptance of the Holy Spirit. Muslims do not accept the Holy Spirit as the true form of God, the treasonous rebellion in heaven and on earth. Descending to the earth as a group who all agree to go along with the plan to alter the evolution of the human species, the accursed, transgressing angels initiated the concept of high treason against the supreme being and considered themselves to be gods in the universe. The truth of this statement becomes apparent from reading the corroborating information within the Urantia book. 
which falsely proclaims the legitimacy and supremacy of these criminal extraterrestrials. A preponderance of contradictions and linguistic manipulations make the pages of the Urantia book only useful as a scratchy substitute for toilet paper. The Urantia book is Satan's attempt to proclaim his innocence for the treasonous crime committed against humanity a long time ago, and quite a few people have fallen into the trap of believing it because the name of Melchizedek appears in their doctrinal texts. There is absolutely no reasonable validation for Melchizedek to appear within the Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, or the Slavonic translation of the Book of Enoch the Prophet, except to create a premise for this character to appear in the Urantia book, which is just another attempt by Satan and his species of errant extraterrestrial originating cohorts to trick mankind into believing a lie about Almighty God. This argument also proves that these Judeo-Christian books are cursed books, but they all continue to contain truths about the evolution of humanity and God's relationship with mankind. The Supreme Being, God Almighty, established everything in the entire universe to have a natural evolutionary progression. In response to the ripple these errant angels caused in the fabric of the universe, God sent to the earth his enforcers known as Elohim, the Shining Ones. These good angels abducted the seventh man from Adam in the first ever documented CE4 event as the result of Enoch's meditations and prayers, which are also known as CE5. In order to confront the transgressing angels, their offspring, and the humans who were erroneously worshipping false gods, the one and only God of the universe needed to transfigure Enoch to have everlasting life, the same as other eternal beings, so that Enoch would have the power to reprove the transgressors and the humans they tricked into worshiping them as gods. There was a serious danger in the mission God gave to Enoch because the transgressing aliens, their mutated offspring, and the humans they made to worship them as gods were all capable of simply killing a normal human being without much trouble. Enoch was an ephemeral human being by birth. He originated on earth naturally, and God chose him because he was a pure descendant from the first man God created on earth. Enoch was the first human soul whom God had made eternal with the gift of everlasting life. This event had the purpose of enabling Enoch's spirit to return to earth in a new or healed human body if his original, ephemeral body, ceased to function as a result of performing his task to confront the transgressors. If the transgressing aliens, their Nephilim offspring, or the humans who worshipped them killed Enoch, he would just keep coming back in another body another day because God has the power to create a human body whole from nothing. God's reasoning for transfiguring Enoch to have eternal life was very practical under the circumstances. Enoch spoke the language. He knew his way around, and his appearance was the same as other humans. The event was also a very shocking occurrence for all of the eternal creatures who witnessed it and came to know that Eloi had the ability to give any of his creations eternal life when they had not previously known this was possible. Enoch, the progenitor of the Hebrew race, became the first space-faring human in the history of mankind. Yuri Gagarin, a Russian Orthodox Christian, was not the first space-faring human being in history. Enoch did not die because God took him away into the heavens within a holy advance among the holy angels, the Elohim. See Genesis 5, 24. Enoch's adventures are the beginning of the very first epic story of mankind that also involved travel in space. 
The story begins in the middle of things as stated in the introductions, so this first canto might seem a little confusing when followed by the second canto, which goes into more explanatory detail about the crime, the criminals, and the punishment. The content of the second canto is actually the beginning of the story itself, and the content of the first canto actually becomes information that is tertiary to information presented in the third canto. In other words, the third canto provides more extensive details about what happened when the Elohim abducted Enoch, transfigured him to have everlasting life, took him to heaven where he was face to face with Eloi, and showed him future events upon returning him to earth. Enoch's story is the most extensive testimony of a CE4 event ever documented. The good, bad, and ugly. During his time among the Watchers, Enoch received the prophecy of the apocalypse occurring at the end of mankind's evolutionary cycle, and he came to know about the great deluge God directed as a corrective measure to undo the damage caused by the prohibited extraterrestrial interference on Earth. The purpose of the Great Flood was not to punish mankind for sinfulness so much as it had the purpose of wiping out the Nephilim, the illegitimate offspring of the alien species who interfered with the natural evolution of humanity by mating with human females. The flood was a second chance for the human species that became ill-fated from an unauthorized alien intervention. A CE6 event does not always have a positive result for a species. In fact, the outcome of the first CE6 event in human history has been negative, with the second and third intervention attempts not entirely able to correct the damage, with the bad aliens getting duly notified that they were all eternally condemned more flashback occurs in the narrative as it appears in those ancient documents. Canto 4 presents a great deal of information about the inner workings of the extraterrestrial spacecraft piloted by the Elohim. Enoch was not fully cognizant of what it was that he was seeing because he was viewing a technology too far advanced for a man of his time. The good aliens could only tell him simple things about it all. The poetic retelling of this part of the story helps to make it all more understandable because modern humans are more familiar with this technology than Enoch could have ever been in his time. The narrative injects provide explanations for Enoch's experiences that are not in the original text, but the most important of all antediluvian revelations in this fourth canto is the prophecy about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, whose appearance in history has been a third CE6 event. The good angels take Enoch to a place in the universe where he sees this tree of life which figuratively represents a future intervention plan for humanity. This tree of life has an alternate purpose, but Enoch does not know what that is because he was antediluvian. The distant planet is a new earth and a new heaven, and this vision is the second vision of wisdom. After seeing this place as a future location for the righteous souls of mankind, the holy angels take Enoch back to his home planet where they show him the future fate of all the nations of earth. The details provided in the Ethiopic text made available to Lawrence in the early 19th century sequentially and metaphorically describe the American continents, Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia, and parts of Arabia through Middle Asia. The ugly fate of these nations is within Enoch's cryptic prophecy about them. What becomes unclear is the fate of those nations north of India, except that the Garden of Eden and a tree of knowledge appear in this location. The precise location could be any place in Asia, from Kazakhstan to northern Siberia, or from North Korea to Belarusia. The story could also be relating the original location of the Garden of Eden. If that is the case, then this passage seems to suggest that Central Asia is the location of mankind's origin, or perhaps where mankind will survive post-apocalypse 
and become a new species after mutation. Humanity is not likely to survive in North America, which becomes completely annihilated in global thermonuclear war. The ugliest fate of all these revealed fates appears in this last part of Canto V, which is also a prophecy and the third vision of wisdom. This prophecy seems to be the prediction of what could occur at the beginning of the apocalypse. According to one possible interpretation, a wind that blows over the North Pole represents a preemptive strike with nuclear weapons most likely originating from the North American continent. A response to this weak and feminine slap becomes a dual nation and devastating retaliatory strike from both Russia and China. The dual gate winds blow a response that obliterates the North American continent. Afterwards, everyone is nuking everyone else from various locations all over the planet, including submarine platforms, which may be equipped with supersonic nuclear missiles and hiding on the bottom of the Atlantic along the eastern coast of the United States right now. The end of mankind happens with the Earth becoming permanently irradiated from the use of nuclear weapons in an all-out World War III. The prediction of this global genocide becomes the justification for a CE6 event. This fourth and final intervention attempt does not prevent the Earth's destruction, but it was never supposed to stop. What God had already determined would be the final solution. The New Testament book of Revelation foretells that the third intervention attempt to prevent the destruction of Earth fails because humanity is unwilling to be peaceful and repentant. See Revelation 11, 1 through 19. Humanity rejects the Messiah and his message by murdering the messenger and then fabricating lies that he was the son of God. The purpose of the final CE6 intervention event is not to successfully prevent the Earth's destruction by global thermonuclear war. The purpose of this final intervention is to present to mankind an option of repentance and acceptance of God's eternal truth in order to salvage as many righteous souls among humanity as possible. The truly wicked will never repent, but the righteous will have an opportunity to know the eternal truth before the apocalypse. Antediluvian Revelations of the Apocalypse The rest of the story might already be known from other parts of the New Testament prophecy that foretells events such as the rapture and the seven years of tribulation during which those who temporarily survived this final war will suffer horribly for refusing to repent of pagan idolatry. Earth becomes a dead planet after the apocalypse unless God decides to renew life upon it at some unknown time. The good news is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth for the souls of the righteous to inhabit as new creatures living to love God Almighty for the duration of their existences. While the souls of the unrighteous will perish or become eternally condemned to suffer in a chasm of fire, righteous souls will become new life elsewhere in the universe or ascend into heaven, returning to the Almighty Holy Spirit. The Book of Enoch, the prophet, repeats these apocalyptic themes, appearing in part one throughout the remainder of the story with slight variations in details. There will also be additional references to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as the Chosen One, the Son of Man, and the Son of Woman. Some of the antediluvian revelations appearing in this first part may not necessarily need to be listed completely, but there are some items worth mentioning in this summary. The transfiguration of a human soul to be eternal happened prior to this event happening to Jesus Christ, but this truth has been ignored by other scholars, theologians, and early apostles who have misinterpreted transfiguration to be proof that Jesus was the Son of God. Knowing that transfiguration is a CE4 event of spiritual empowerment is another of several antediluvian revelations, and knowing that God has done this prior to Jesus Christ helps to clarify the importance of this power that only Eloi has.
God can transfigure a human soul to be eternal, but this event did not mean that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. It proved God chose a human being to perform a task on earth in support of God's interests. The CE4 event that occurred for Enoch was with the Elohim. In consideration of other reported CE4 events, it is easily arguable that Elohim have not always been involved in every known or reported CE4 event. Furthermore, these other documented CE4 events prove that there are more than one species of extraterrestrials visiting Earth, but only that Elohim have the ability to transfigure a human soul to be eternal. Still, there were other reveals in this first part of the epic. The concepts of alternating current electricity for the impairing of lights, nuclear reactors which may be either fission or fusion-based power sources, the television portrayed as a frosty orb with sound coming from it, and even the projected light with sound like in a movie theater are several examples of antediluvian revelations found within the cryptic descriptions appearing in the early English translations of the Book of Enoch the Prophet. Such things were not known during the early 19th century or before, so the preservation of these prophecies results from a lack of anyone endeavoring to conceal or reveal them further by editorial changes or explanations until now. The reason for these things to become revealed as prophetic predictions hidden in the ancient text might be obvious to some listeners and readers who also know that the event known as Judgment Day is approaching rapidly. The time has come for mankind to know all of these mysteries, but there is still more of the epic story remaining. The second part begins with the first of three parables, and the spell of sleeplessness might still affect some readers despite the author's effort to reveal it in advance. A cup of herbal tea that causes drowsiness might help the reader get some rest, but praising God is the solution. As previously explained in the introduction, these spells use linguistic manipulations, and they are not magic because they use psycholinguistics to have a psychological effect. The release from this first spell is to willingly praise the one and only God of the universe and profess true love for Eloi, the Shining One. The modifications made in the poetic retelling should be helpful to dispel the effects of this sleeplessness spell. But the solution for release from this linguistic manipulation has been clearly stated here. The author has fairly and responsibly warned the reader to have a cup of herbal tea and to praise God. This concludes the summary discussion of part one. Be sure to follow or subscribe for notifications of future releases. Thank you for listening. I am Michael.